So, Parth, what have you been eating? I recently had tiramisu from Costco. Oh, was it delicioso? It was. It came in a individualized um, serving size, and we've we've been getting it um, for a few months now. It's a fun little treat to have after dinner. Are you nourished? Very. What about you, Trent? Oh, me? Um, I had, I went for a long hike this morning, and then I was very tired, and so all day I was thinking about um, tomato soup and grilled cheese, so I came home and I constructed just that. Um, wow. What a little chef you are. Yes, I'm a culinary genius. Um, but the, the, the complications arose. Have you ever used an electric stove? Um, yes. I had only ever used a gas stove, and so this is my first rodeo. And the electric stove, it's like hard to gauge how hot things are because there's no active flame. It's just like some glass like f- flashing in different colors. like. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically I burnt the hell out of my tomato soup, and it tasted very ashy. Um, and at the point where I ran out of sandwich to dip, um, and I had to focus on the remaining liquid, um, it was much less appetizing. But that first part, with the grilled cheese involved, delicious. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Well, uh, that's enough of that. Uh, we have a podcast to do. We have a long podcast. We gotta, we gotta move quickly. Alright, well, I, I guess we should cue the intro then? Cue the intro. Welcome back to Craft Services, the podcast, where we talk about the movies. Each week, we discuss a different film and hopefully have an interview with a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience. This week, we're going to be talking about Christopher Nolan's 2000 film, Memento. With us, we have one of its actors. He played... Sammy Jenkins. Steven Tabalaski. Uh, Parth, was this a good interview? Did we enjoy his company? I, I would say, and um, Trent hear me out on this i think this might be our best interview yeah this is a huge episode for us so um it's our first actor yeah actors are the ones in front of the screen they're the ones doing the acting they're generally just the most important people in life generally parth little known fact without the ask without the actors there's no movies is that what you want do you want to live in that world i don't this podcast doesn't exist without movies. Uh, this podcast doesn't exist without yours truly, Stephen Tobolowski. So with that transition in mind... We'll cut to our interview. Please enjoy. Hello, everybody. Today we have a very special guest, our very first actor, Stephen Tobolowski. He has graced us with his presence to talk to us today. You'll have seen him in such projects as Groundhog Day, Deadwood, Glee, Silicon Valley, and our discussion for today, Christopher Nolan's film, Memento. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Um, So we'd like to ask you first how, just how you got interested in acting 
uh, at the very beginning and what your first acting gig was. Oh, gosh. Well, by acting gig, do you mean when I actually acted or when I got paid to act? Gig implies you were paid, but that that came a long way down the line. Do you mean when I first got on stage and performed? Yeah, your first volunteer position. Yeah. Oh, well, that was I was five years old. I always wanted to be an actor because I believed in monsters. I thought they were real. I thought that actually films like Godzilla were documentaries and not fiction. And and I thought, if you can't lick them, join them. So I thought maybe I could hang out with the Wolfman and Frankenstein, Godzilla. And that was my reason for pursuing acting. When I was five years old, I did the role of Hansel in Hansel and Gretel at the uh, Keys Park Peewee uh acting tournament and i got second best actor of the peewee division so i've always wondered who who beat me out but uh it, it was interesting because my bedtime when i did hans on gretel was eight o'clock and i couldn't stay up past my bedtime so luckily we got an early slot to do hans on gretel and then my mom took me home and i wasn't there for the awards ceremony so it was my aunt esther from pennsylvania who stayed to the bitter end. Could you imagine? Poor Aunt Going Esther. across the country, the United States. Where are, you guys, where are you guys at now? We both hail from the New Jersey. So you're in New York. Okay, so she goes from like Scranton, Pennsylvania, down to Dallas, Texas. She watches Pee Wee Division acting. You know it has to be good. You know it has to be really good. And the reason she came was to see little Stevie do Hansel and Gretel. He has to go to bed, but she has to stay for the entire evening. And she came home with my second best uh, actor ribbon, the red ribbon. And that's when I knew I was destined to be an actor. But all during elementary school, high school, college, I acted and acted for free. And I got my equity card. When I was in college, I had a teacher that tried to kick me out of school and they put a freeze on me pretty much that I wasn't going to be cast in any university productions. So rather than quit, I went out and got my equity card and my SAG card and I started acting professionally. And that's when I got the money. So I acted in equity shows. I got $55 a week under the provision that I would turn the money back to the box office as a donation. So that was my first real acting jobs. What did this college professor have against you? Search me. You know, I it, it was something that haunted and and I mean she went she went around ordinary channels. She she was amazing. See, you got eliminated from the acting program if you got something called an two unsatisfactory critiques. You know, this is academia, so they have all these words that they use. So, uh I got one unsatisfactory critique because she manipulated a situation and said that she was casting me in a major production and she wanted to rehearse with me. And I told her that actually I had to do uh, cleaning up the stage from the King Lear show. I, it was my job on stage crew. And she said, well, let me get you permission to get off of stage crew and we'll rehearse together and then we'll be fine. And so the next day she came in and said, I wrote a note to the head of the stage crew 
said that I wanted to rehearse with you for a major production. He wrote back. He said, everything was fine, so we can rehearse today. So I rehearsed. Next day, the head of the department came down and said, where were you? You didn't show up for stage crew. That's an automatic unsatisfactory critique. One more. I said, but she wrote a note. And he goes, there was no note. There Nobody. was no permission. Man. That's so Shakespearean. Th- this is, it, so, it's a trap. It's a setup. Yeah. And so I had the whole rest of my school career waiting for the second unsatisfactory. Looming over uh, you. But but the way, but but I knew it. See, I, I've had the ability to see evil lurking ahead of me. And I saw she logically would lie to a, to what, a, a sophomore student to like get him out. She will do anything to get me out of here. So what I did was I went to my theater history teacher during my junior year. And I said, Professor Graham White, are there any rules against taking the graduate exam early? And he said, no, you could take it whenever you want. I said, I want to take it with you now, but you cannot tell anyone I'm taking this test. And not a soul. And I love this man to this day, Anthony Graham White, my theater history teacher. And I think he liked me because I like theater history. So Saturday morning in the back of his classroom, uh, a year and a half early, I took my graduate exam and uh, he never told a soul. I never told a soul. And sure enough, six weeks before we were going to graduate senior year, Joan Potter, that teacher, gave me my second uh, <gasps> my second unsatisfactory critique because she said she didn't like my attitude. Mm. And so the head of the department said, we're so sorry. This means you're not going to graduate you're you're out of the department you and i said but wait a minute i have my hours i have my grades he says yeah but because you're officially expelled you won't be allowed to take the graduate exam too late and i said but what if i already took it and he said well that's impossible because we don't give it until next week i said i took it a year and a half ago called tony graham white he still should have the test and I beat her and I ended up graduating, not only graduating, but graduating first in my class from that school. A few years later, I did my first show on Broadway. So that's in Dallas, Texas, that uh, school, SMU. So that was in Dallas, Texas. When I graduated, a few years later, I did my first show on Broadway. This teacher came backstage and my show in New York stuck her head in the door and said, you're still no good. <laughs> what the heck amazing amazing she holds so, a vendetta you you oh, wronged her in a past life but, it, but who I, has I the last her, laugh now i wronged her in a past so i felt a little like liam neeson and taken thing like you know if you leave me alone everything's going to be all right but if you don't i've acquired a certain set of skills and, and I, I will, will you, find I, you and i will kill you i will find you and i will end up with so many more credits than you ever had yeah, so that's that was my rocky, but it was it was looking back on it, it was it was good to understand that trust no one except yourself, do what you have to do to succeed, and and move forward. Uh, don't believe other people, the good intentions of others. I, it's a harsh view of the world, but she's she's your J.K. Simmons from Whiplash. <laughs> <laughs> 
She's my J.K. Simmons. So what was your first Broadway production, the one you were talking about? Uh, The Wake of Jamie Foster. This was written by Beth Henley. It starred Susan Kingsley. Uh, My girlfriend in the show was a young actress named Holly Hunter. Uh, We had done the the show in Hartford, Connecticut. And in that production, Amanda Plummer was my girlfriend. And time, hey man, me me (laughs) and the odd women and uh, (laughs) the odd beautiful women. And and Time Magazine, not the show not only got rave reviews, Time Magazine said The Wake of Jamie Foster is not only the play of the year, it is the play of the decade. Now I have to say this was very early in the decade, but it was the play because it was like 1981. It was the play of the decade, and we went to New York and we were certain we were going to be babes on Broadway. But it was one of those cases where we got standing ovations during uh, the previews, the three weeks of previews, and then opening night, Frank Rich in the New York Times said, "Party's over, kids," <sighs> and he destroyed the play you had your and, fun and so we we had to finish out it back in new york at that time i think the playwright had to do 28 performances to retain the rights to her play and so we had to finish out our run with people reading the new york times before we started the play and now they were convinced they were watching the worst show in history totally different experience but that was the first play i did on broadway um so pivoting a little bit uh our movie for the today is memento you played sammy jankis uh what was that like how'd you get involved that was insane uh i got a script uh of memento and i thought it was like a joke script i you guys are you you know a lot about film scripts and how film scripts are created as much as freshmen in film school know about so film scripts. What what would you say the average length of a first draft film should be? 120 pages. 120. That's the that's the standard answer 120 and that is because that format is very clear. Each page represents a minute. Yeah. Uh, that's Two why hours. The, that's yeah. why the indentations are and and producers are going to want you to bang that 120 down to the high 90s before you shoot. So I get this script for Memento, and I don't remember the exact page count, but it looked like War and Peace. It was about yay thick, something like 300 plus pages. And I'm going like, oh my God. So usually this screams out amateur night. Yet, you know, when you get a script like this, they go like, hey, it's, it's not, we're not in the hundreds. I mean, this is going to take me forever to read this script. This is crazy. So I start reading this script and I'm about halfway through and my wife came through the bedroom and she says, is it as bad as you think? And I go, well, it really pisses me off. And I go, and she goes, why? I said, well, right now it is phenomenal. Uh, and I know that the writer, whoever this writer, Jonathan and Chris, you know, I, these writers, I, I know they're going to let me down at the end. They can't keep this going. I got to the end of the script. I threw the script across the room and Annie said, terrible. And I said, quite probably the greatest script I ever read. This script is so good. 
And the reason it was so long wasn't because they were violating the 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 protocol of, of writing a screenplay, but they were so specific, uh, Chris and Jonathan, they were so specific in writing the exact camera shots into mm. the script to let you know this shot begins looking exactly like the previous scene. There's going to be a low angle camera shot going over the shoulder. We see the, the exact, they're wearing the, and, and you, so the picture was painted that what the hell is going on with time? Yeah. They had already put the shot list in the screenplay. So it was, it was mind boggling. So I, I called up my agent and I said, uh, I'm going to shut this window just a second. Hmm. Just take a second. Uh, here we go. So I, I called up my agent and I said, I have to have an audition for this, this movie. Uh, it said Sammy Jenkins. It, it was the part they wanted me to read for. And I said, well, I just have to go in and see Chris. Uh, there's nothing really I could do for Sammy Jenkins. You know, he doesn't have much of a part. They wanted me to read some little bit of the part, I guess, when I'm getting the electrocuted, the test or going like, God, what the hell, whatever, whatever that was. So I went in and I met with Chris and I said, this is one of the most phenomenal projects I could ever imagine being a part of as an actor. And I said, you're going to have a lot of people in Los Angeles that want to be in this movie. But my case is this. You're going to meet a lot of good actors, but I'm the only actor you're going to meet that actually has had amnesia. Mm. And Chris goes, what? You had amnesia? I said, I had amnesia. I said, I had experimental surgery for a kidney stone. And what they did is they gave me a general anesthetic and they give, I'm like six, three and I, at the, weight like 200 pounds. So they give it to big guys. This The idea was to give it to these drugs to where you still feel the pain, but you forget. You forget oh. the pain. So they can give you orders. They could say, walk down the hall, jump on the operating table, lie down, and they don't have to have orderlies carry you. That was the idea. But the problem was, like any general anesthetic, it takes several days for it to work out of your system. So I had the kidney surgery. It all went well. Thank you very much. But the next day I'm in my, my house and like suddenly I would have like, I'd wake up in the living room, like, and there would be an object in my hand. And I had no idea what I was doing, what the object was, how I got there, if I was taking this someplace or putting it down, I'd have, I'd be like born this moment. And I'd have half a glass of water in my hand. And I didn't know if I had drunk half of the water or if I was going to the kitchen to refill it. One of the worst was I was in the bathroom. I was standing over the toilet and I was holding little Steve mm. and and I'm standing there and then my wife yells from the other room she goes you, you finished 10 minutes ago you know you're done zip how, up how long did this go on 
it several went days. On, it went on for about three days. And like with general anesthetic, you know, it's a little bit less each day. But I knew what it was like to have amnesia. That's exactly so, what Sammy Jenkins goes through. Exactly. You were Except, built for this role. And and it's just and and so the issue is it is you are reborn every second. It isn't that you forget. You you have no no actual grasp on any reality you just had. So in in a scene where I'm get, giving Harriet the the shots, it, you know, the it's that I I have to continually start over again. I have no inkling that I've already given her one or two shots. I have no knowledge of this, which makes that scene extremely horrifying. And it turned out to be the most, I would say to this day, the most difficult, except doing maybe the live show uh, with the Jeffersons. The live show was like a blood sport. That was difficult. But shooting Memento and playing Sammy Jenkins was the hardest part I ever played because the tendency for the actor is to act and to act like, where am I? Mm-hmm. You know, to, to kind of shape the scene to do whatever. And I had to completely trust Chris and just go like, I'm just going to do what I do of continually forgetting and continually being reborn. And it isn't going to make any sense to anybody watching it. And you just had to trust that that was going to work. Uh, Yeah, yeah, but it's perfect. Like you pulled it off. You just look like a blank slate every time you sit down. Blank slate is the difficult thing to have an actor do on screen because they don't, (laughs) they never want to do. And another thing that we're told to emote. the, The difficult thing is that Chris wanted lots of coverage. And so the difficult thing is, the actor playing Sammy Jenkins is that you can't pretend you can't remember. You have to not remember, but at the same time, a part of you has to remember what you did for coverage because Chris wanted to go into close-up. So I had to remember my body position, but I had to not remember. And that was extraordinarily difficult to do, but it was, it's a great film. That sounds amazing. Um, uh, just sort of going off of Chris Nolan, what was your relationship with him like? Uh, and I've I've heard that he's he kind of shoots very quickly, um, doesn't do too many takes. And I was just wondering what your experiences experience was like, especially given that that was his up to date like second film. Yeah, uh, Chris is a, a fabulous director. First of all, he has one thing that some directors don't have and chris knows exactly what he wants he he understands the project he understands shots camera work he understands camera like backwards and forwards and he knows the coverage he wants and so when you're working with chris the set was very fun very lighthearted we all had a great time shooting it it, it was a great set to be on. There was a lot of fellowship and, and uh, we all felt we were working on a great project and we loved it. And uh, Chris, Chris was one of the simplest directors to work with because he was so clear. 
He was so clear as to what he wanted. He could tell you specifically what he wanted and what he wanted to see and and let you do your part. And he was very open to whatever you wanted to do. So, you, you know, for me, I remember when we finished that movie, my thoughts were, you know, people are going to hear about this young guy, this Chris Nolan, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's going to, he's going to make a name for himself somewhere down the line. Uh, terrific. And, and, uh, three cheers for, for Chris, for, for all of his success. Just terrific. So we read online that your dialogue was, uh, improvised. Is this the case or has the internet misinformed us? No, I, I think, I think a lot of it was, I think the only part that was really kind of scripted was the the test where uh, the electrified objects where I'm I'm getting electrified. I think that was, but the rest of it was just through description of the scene, and because Chris wanted to shoot all those scenes with in the home, you know, with with Harriet and you know with Leonard and all that, so we wanted to get all of those scenes down. We just made everything up as we went, which was another thing that you had to remember because Chris also wanted to cover it. So not only we had to make up our lines, we had to remember what our lines were for the coverage and have amnesia at the same time. That's a a difficult task. Um... But it was fun. And Chris made it fun too. And, and, and so did Guy Pierce. I mean, there's never a more fun guy ever to, to be at the head of a movie than that guy. It's just hysterical. That's great. Um, sort of pivoting a little bit, um, you yourself have had um, your own writing projects, and you've written a book, a dangerous, The Dangerous Animals Club, um, and we were wondering what that was about and what the process of its creation meant or was and what its title means. Yeah, the uh, I, I've got two books now. Dangerous Animals Club was the first, and the second one is My Adventures with God, and the two books intersect. What it all means was this, um, I guess in 2008, I had a terrible accident, actually. I uh, got knocked off of the side of an active volcano uh, in Iceland in a storm. And my horse and I were lifted off the ground with like this tornadic wind that came off the Atlantic Ocean. It carried us a few feet, dropped us. The ho- we, my wife and I were on this riding tour of Iceland, and the horse took off. I was losing my balance. The last thing I remember is kind of going sideways. They found me in a fetal position on a <laughs> basaltic lava flow, hardened lava flow. No, I didn't fall into lava, but it was, you know, it was a volcano. So it was like basalt, but the only vegetation in the middle and I was in a fetal position, the head of the Icelandic riding group came over the hill with an extra horse coming to my rescue. According to legend, I jumped up, jumped on the horse, said I felt sick. He said, maybe you were hurt in the fall. I said, what (laughs) fall? He said, get off of the horse. The amnesia's back. (laughs) At this point, we're on top of this damn volcano we have no way down. So they get one of these off-road vehicles and boom, 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 boom. They drive me down to Hetla. I'm going in and out of consciousness. Uh, 
apparently a doctor there puts me in a neck brace and sends me to Reykjavik. So I'm in a, and I'm going in and out of uh, consciousness and I open my eyes like in Memento where you're born in this moment. And I open up my eyes and I see my wife's face and I say, where am I? And she says, and the way she says it, I could tell she said it 500 times. We're in Iceland. You fell off a horse. We're on our way to Reykjavik uh, to get x-rays. You've been hurt. So I could tell she said it a million times. This seems like a long story, I know, to get to those books. But anyway, I find the, doc- the doctor said that I may have fractured a couple vertebrae in my neck. And he says, like, you're fine. Just enjoy the rest of Iceland. You're free to go home. So my wife and I watched a horse show and ate hot dogs in Iceland for another 10 days. I flew back to L.A. and my doctor there x-rayed me and said, you were misdiagnosed. You have a fatal injury. Your neck is not fractured. Your entire neck is broken. Five vertebra, multiple breaks. The only reason you're alive is because most people have a curve of their spine spinal cord like so, their cervical spine like so, and yours is the opposite. And so a lot of the blow went into your shoulder instead of like Christopher Reeve snapping your neck in two. So when you have a broken neck, there isn't a lot you can do. So I sit home and I realized I was very close to death. So I'm going to write stories for my two boys so they'll know something about their father in case I don't make it through this. So I began writing stories. About this time, a student from Harvard named David Chen said, do you want to do a podcast of you doing live stories? I said, well, it just so happens I'm writing stories now. So we began a podcast called The Tobolowsky Files, where I start, where I read some of these stories. These stories ended up going around the world on the thing called the internet. NPR and PRI radio stations picked them up and started playing the stories all different places all over the country. I don't know if they did in Jersey, but they did in near nearby hamlets. Uh, and then Simon & Schuster said, can we do a book of your stories? So the Dangerous Animals Club is some of these stories of... Uh, True, true stories that happened to me in my life. Uh, and then my adventures with God are beginnings and ends of the Dangerous Animals Club story and carried some further. So in, I think, Adventures with God, I have the broken neck story. I believe that's uh, Afflictions of Love. And I think that's in the second book. And... Uh, so right now, what I do is the podcast has been successful over the years, and we're just premiering our new season, actually September 28th, soon. We're going to drop, uh, I've written 16 more shows, and boy, a long time ago. So this will make 99, 99 Tobolowsky File shows. Uh, and it's, we did it for free. We did it for nothing, but it gave me two books and I got a trip to 
three trips to England, a trip to Ireland, a trip to New Zealand, like talking about the book and all over the country talking about the book. So the the writing I love, and it's especially good during a pandemic. Um, So um, is this your podcast, Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party? No, that's a... That is the movie David Chen saw when he said, I love Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. That's me telling showbiz stories, basically. Uh, Robert Brinkman directed that. It's a wonderful movie, but we we shot it over three days, and it's supposed to represent my birthday and that I'm talk, telling stories from dawn until midnight. And so mm. it goes through my career in my home, at my party, and cleaning up for my party. And David Chin saw that movie and said, could we do something like Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party, but in a podcast? And that became the Tobolowsky Files. Awesome. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, sorry, changing gears. You also directed your own film, uh, Two Idiots in Hollywood, adapted <laughs> from your own play. Yes. Uh, uh, tell me, tell me about that. What was the pro- process oh, that, of the adaptation like? And that was that was hilarious. So, it was um, the era in the uh, early '80s, late '70s, early '80s in Los Angeles. Everybody felt like theater was the thing. Theater was king. TV, poo, poo, poo. No one likes TV. Everyone wants to either be a film actor, but in art films, something serious, nothing frivolous, or the theater. And so I was with a group of actors and we all were writing our own plays. And I wrote this play, Two Idiots in Hollywood, which was just lunacy. It's just absolutely the stupidest play ever written. And it was an equity waiver play. I guess you got that in New Jersey where the actors don't really get paid, but um, it was a nice production. And we got rave reviews. I guess it's like you win the Kentucky Derby of equity waiver plays. We all did it for free, but we got great reviews in the city and the state California magazine gave it five stars. Uh, A producer saw it and said, we'll do a production. I want you to do it as a movie. So they gave us $2 million to shoot two idiots in Hollywood. How old are you at this point? Oh, God, I felt like I was 100. This was 1984. I was born in 51. So is that like 34, 33 years old? Something and now like they're just giving you $2 million. Seems Two like million a good idea. Buck, but, but, I mean, that was not and, my And money. back then money. That was back then money, but that was to make the movie, mm-hmm. not my salary. Oh, but, I wasn't uh, worried about that. But, but <laughs> here, here's the great thing. This is the great thing people have to remember when you're starting your career is that you never know what, what anything will lead to. So I write a stupid play like Two Idiots in Hollywood, which is incredibly funny, but incredibly stupid. Uh, it wins the, the lottery and they want to do a film of it. Well, right around that time that I had shot the basic, I guess, all the footage and we were going into editing and final editing. I got the part of Clayton Townley in Mississippi Burning. So the word got to Alan Parker that I was interested in directing. And so I was supposed to shoot Mississippi Burning for one month to be the head of the Ku Klux Klan. 
but we had one huge outdoor scene that required like a couple thousand extras. And so they had to make sure that they had good weather. So they changed my contract from being one month to being pretty much a run of the picture deal. So they can do the big crowd scene whenever, and, and they were paying me so little money it wasn't costing them anything to keep me there. So Alan Parker came by my trailer one day and he, he said, so Stephen, since you're going to be here a while, I heard you're interested in directing. Perhaps you'd like to follow me around and see what I do. And I go, yeah, sure, Alan. Yeah, no problem. So Alan, Alan took me with him to camera blocking meetings, meeting with the art department, meeting with sets. He, he went and showed me all the details of each department of what everybody did. And then along the way, he started testing me. We go into camera meetings and the cinematographer, all the operators are there. He goes, okay, Stephen, stop. How would you shoot this scene? And I go, uh, okay. I would start with a wide shot of, of the Ku Klux Klan people. I'd cut to a close-up of me coming out on stage. He goes, that's fine. That's fine. That's boring. That's boring. That's terrible. No, you wouldn't do that at all. Not, not be interesting. And so uh, if you remember that film, Mississippi Burning, it begins with an FBI guy sitting on his comic, on the front of his car, reading like a comic book, close up of him. And then you begin to hear me talking in the background on a microphone. The camera moves on a dolly and suddenly there's an opening in the trees and you see thousands of people and this little guy on stage. And it's amazing. It's absolutely awesome. So for three months, I had Alan Parker as my teacher in how to direct film. And when I did Groundhog Day, I went to the opening of Groundhog Day and Alan was standing in front of the theater. And I said, Alan, Alan, I'm such an idiot. I had no idea of what you were giving me. I just thought, you know, I, I'm just used to college. You know, I was used to, I thought every director says, sure, come around, follow me, watch what I do. I had no idea what a gift you gave me. I just thank you so much for giving me that time. He goes, oh, stop it, stop it, just stop it. He says, but you better be good in this movie here. You better be good. And I said, well, I haven't seen it, sir. I hope it's good. And uh, the last, I visited with Alan in England after that some. And the last connection I had with Alan Parker was my son was going to, oh God, what a mistake this was. He was going to summer school in Paris, in Paris, France. He wanted to have a vacation in France without the parents, which turned out to be a serious mistake in my judgment. And, and so we went, Annie and I, my wife and I went out for his birthday to celebrate his birthday in Paris, France. And what my son wanted for his birthday present was for us to do his laundry. Well, let me tell you, Paris is not a good town to get your laundry done. They don't have laundromats like they have in New Jersey. They have like 
four of them in the entire city. So I have to take this huge bundle of laundry on a train following Because it's his birthday wish. Yeah, yeah, to get, to wash his laundry. And I'm walking around the corner of some street in Paris. And this man bumps into me and goes, oh, excuse me, you're Stephen Tobolowsky, aren't you? From Mississippi Burning. And, and I go, yes. He goes, Alan Parker is a dear friend of mine. And we talk about you all the time and we wish you well. Uh, shall I tell Alan everything is fine? I go, yes. Please give Alan my best. Tell him I love him and I respect him. And he's still like one of the greatest people in my life. Right-ho, Stephen. Right-ho. Well, go ahead and do your laundry. And that was the last connection I had with Alan Parker. That's amazing. There, amazing there, are, worse, there, there are much worse people to have taught you directing <laughs> than than uh, director of Pink Floyd's The Wall. Um, oh, yeah. Um, so, but... Um, you, you gave us a great segue um, because we wanted to talk about Groundhog Day um, and what that experience was like and what shooting with Harold Ramis is like, um, if you could speak on that. Yeah, it was terrifying. I was working on another film at the time called Calendar Girl. And the the trick with Calendar Girl was we had the same line producer as Groundhog Day. And what the line producer does is they are responsible for organizing the schedule. And because we had the same line producer, Groundhog Day was not able to abide by SAG rules in giving me a certain amount of time in between one project and another. So I was in Paris, California, mm. not Paris, France, Paris, California, which where is they the- have laundromats. Yeah, they have laundromats and they also have gangs. It's like one of the gang capitals of uh, California. And I was shooting Calendar Girl. And then I had to go shoot Groundhog Day the next day. So according to SAG, you're supposed to have 12 hours or whatever, 12 hours from set to set. But because I was working on a different project, but with the same line producer, I finished Calendar Girl at about 2.30, took the uh, long car ride from Paris, California to LA, California, to get my flight to Chicago and then my car trip. I, I ended up getting to Woodstock, Illinois, where we were shooting at about three in the morning. And we were first up, Bill and I on the street, first up at like 6 a.m. So that means I'm going to have two hours of sleep, maybe, if I don't have those lines running through my head. I was scared to death. And uh, it was the first thing they shot in Groundhog Day was one of the street scenes. Uh, In the original script, I think there were nine different days, but several different street scenes. I think in the movie there ends up being like three, but there ended up being, originally there were several. And so Harold comes down to introduce me to Bill. uh, And... I love working with Harold. When I auditioned for the part, Harold read with me. Not He didn't have a reader read with me. He read with me. L- many years later, Harold said, like, well, I thought it would make the actors feel more comfortable because I'm a I'm a actor myself, so you get to read with a real actor. I go, yeah, but you're also our boss. You're like the director, so it's really tense, you know, reading with you. 
and and I and I asked him. I said, "So how did I get the part in Groundhog Day?" Because when I came in, and I found out I was reading with Harold, I kind of apologized, and I said, "Harold, I'm going to be kind of broad when I do this because I feel it's always easier to go smaller than to go bigger." So I'm going to be. He goes do whatever you want to do. I was licking his feet. I was zipping and unzipping his fly. I was straightening his tie. I was doing all this stuff. I was I was all over Harold, all this. Harold started laughing. He goes, oh, stop it, stop it. Okay, stop it. I start driving back to Paris, California to finish that shot. And I hear from my agent that I got the role. About 15 years later, Harold and I are doing a fundraiser. And I said, well, what was it about my performance in the audition that made you want to give me the part of Ned. He said, well, as soon as you left the office, I called Bill Bill up and I said, we found our Ned. This is the most obnoxious person I've ever met in my life. So that was, that was my charm. That was my lucky charm. Yeah, on IM, uh, IMDb, it says that you're known for playing villains to the annoying villains to the protagonist that like gets under their skin. And I was like, that's it's accurate. Yeah. You know, and I think that's one of the, you know, Danny Rubin was the screenwriter of Groundhog Day. It's a brilliant script. And he and Harold did a magnificent job on it. We didn't know at the time it was going to be a classic film, which I think it is. I remember uh, the BBC interviewed me. Oh, congratulations. Groundhog Day has been listed as one of the top 50 comedies, film comedies of all time. And I go, what are the other 49? Like, tell me something new, man. You, you know, it's it's a great movie. But one of the special things about Ned that makes Ned special in the movie Groundhog Day is that Bill Murray is the antagonist of the film. He's He's the jerk. He's the bad guy. He's rude to everybody until he meets Ned. When he meets Ned on the street, Ned is so irritating. Suddenly, Bill becomes our protagonist. Sympathy. Empathy. And so in this subtle little shift, Danny Rubin was able to make our antagonist, our protagonist through one quick scene. It's amazing, the writing. So tell us about the shooting of Groundhog Day just due to the repetitious nature of it. Did it, uh, like, and how many days were you on set? Was it all in a row? Yeah, I did three weeks in a row. And then uh, I went home and then they added me to the party scene at the end. Uh, So basically all I was in originally were a lot of street scenes. Plus uh, when Bill jumps off the tower to his death, I appear in that scene uh, in the original script. But uh, it was interesting because there was a little fold in this that no one ever thought about except Harold Ramis. And that is one of the characters of Groundhog Day is the day of the film. The day of the film has to be the same because it's a repeated day. And the same, I mean, meteorologically, it has to have the same weather. So as a director, Harold Ramis has to decide what is the day that's repeated going to be and how do we know time starts again? So Bill and I shot street scenes 
in all weather conditions. We we had no days off. We were on what you call will notifies in, in the call sheet. And and so if it began to rain, we would get a phone call, Stephen, Bill, come on down. To, let's do the first street scene in the rain. If it began snowing, let's do the street scene in the snow. And so somewhere there is five versions of Groundhog Day of me and Bill outside in different weather conditions. And Harold Ramis ended up choosing gloom as the day that is repeated. No snow, no nothing, but just gloom. And when it starts to snow, at the end is when time starts again. And that's when he and Andy end up going into his apartment uh, at the end. At the end, snow begins to start, and that's when time starts again. Uh, Shooting the film, it was the coldest weather I've ever experienced in my life. It was like an army experiment. And you're wearing, like, costumes. So we're all packing ourselves with heat bags and things that hunters use, stick them in your shoes, stick them in your pockets because our lips were freezing, our hands were freezing. Bill was not a happy camper when he had to keep stepping in that water. He had his feet wrapped in saran wrap. Then he had a neoprene sleeve that skin divers use over his foot. Then he had socks. Then he had his shoes. So he wouldn't lose his foot when he stepped in the water. I mean, it was that, it was, it was so cold. You couldn't talk that kind of cold, but it, it made it exciting filmmaking because there was no real schedules. I think the most exciting moment for me was we, we were shooting that first week and at the end of that first week, Harold Ramis was shooting a big set piece of when Bill discovers time uh, is stopped for him and he has no consequences. And the, and so it was a piece where Bill looking in the mirror and going like, oh, this is great. And he spray paints the wall at the end, thinking like, then it cuts to him chainsawing furniture in the end, you know, in half, like chainsawing. Then he's like buzz cutting his hair into a mohawk, all of this stuff. Uh, just ridiculous. It took about two and a half days to shoot. Harold Ramis saw the footage and threw it away. And if you are into making film, you know how expensive that decision was. And it's your first week of shooting when the studios are looking over your shoulder to see how are you spending our money. He takes the big set piece, the turning point of the film, and throws it away. And instead, he comes back with Bill is up in bed. He's writing something. Bill Bill thinks he breaks his pencil in two, puts half of the pencil on the clock radio, half of the pencil on the bedside table. He goes to bed in the morning, Sonny and Cher is singing. He wakes up and the pencil is whole. And when I saw it with a full audience, People are gasping. And that move of taking, you know, crazy, wild, crazy Bill Murray slapstick out of the movie, which everyone expected to see, was courageous and putting, substituting it for cinematic poetry. And at that point, Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin started rewriting the script. And we were getting pages hot off of the press. And it was, we're going like, damn, 
this is this is different. This is magnificent. And Harold Ramis says, we have to decide what story we're telling. Is it just the story of somebody with no consequences? No, this is the story of how a man is responsible for the time of his life and the decisions we make in our life. And that's what makes it a classic film. And that's what makes it a film that people go back to again and again because it it fills you up when you see it. Yeah, it's a it's a really beautiful film, um, and it's uh, as you said iconic. But it's iconic. not the only iconic movie you've worked on. Um, if you'll excuse my segue, um, you also had a role as captain of the guard in Mel Brooks's Spaceballs, and that is one of my all time favorite movies. And I would love if you could talk a little bit about that. That was probably the first real movie I did. I mean, I think I did a movie in Dallas, Keep My Grave Open. But when I came out to California, I was doing a play because theater was the thing, right? I was doing a play at the theater center downtown with Bill Pullman. And Bill was starting his film career. We were doing this play, Barabbas. And so uh, Mel Brooks came to see Bill in the show, Barabbas. And Bill was playing the lead. I was playing Pontius Pilate. The woman I ended up marrying, Annie, was playing Mrs. Pontius Pilate. And uh, it was a wild and crazy and violent and amazing production. And after after a show, Mel came up to me and says, so we're doing this movie Spaceballs. You know, maybe you'd be right for a, for a part. Would you be interested in being in the movie? I go, are you kidding? You know, I'll mow your lawn. I'll wash your car. I'll do whatever, Mel, if I could be in one of your movies. This this would be a great thing for me. So he says, okay, okay, come on down to the studio and let's let's give it a try. Let's see what happens. So I went down and he gave me the lines for Captain of the Guard. So let's let's run through the scene. Let's just see. So he ran through it and he directed me a few times and says, make it bigger, make it bigger, make it cornier make it you know do this do this do this so we did we did all that he goes all right i'll give you the part you'll have the part so we'll, we'll shoot you on monday and i go like great so i called up my mom and dad i said you won't believe it i'm going to be in mel brooks new movie Spaceballs, and i'm going to shoot monday of course my mom and dad said well do you have a big part no i have one scene but it's a good scene so i showed up on monday uh kind of hung out on set, sat down, and they didn't get to me. And I was very scared, you know, are they going to cut me out of the movie? Then they said, well, come back tomorrow. So I came back, and they were paying me like $1,000 to play captain of the guard. I'm going like, oh, man, this is amazing. But they didn't shoot it. So I come back Tuesday, don't shoot it. Wednesday, don't shoot it. Thursday, don't shoot it. And now I'm getting, like, really depressed. And... And they said, well, I guess come back tomorrow again. And I go like, well, are they ever going to do it? He says, what difference does it make to you? You get paid your money every day you show up. I go, what? (laughs) I get paid $1,000 a day for every day I've been here, even though I didn't work? He goes, yeah, that's the way it works here. It's a big budget picture. Yeah, If if you're called in to work, you get paid. You know, if they don't, you know. 
So I got paid $5,000 to do Spaceballs. I only worked that last day, that Friday. And I thought, this is the career for me. If you could get paid for not working, this is what I need to be doing with my life. How to so succeed in business without trying. <laughs> yeah, it was great. So I, I loved it. And, you know, Bill and I, we, we've done theater together and things. My wife worked with Bill too a lot. So we, we always run into each other in LA because he's a theater guy too. Just while we're on a roll of complimenting you, uh, you're in a show I like, Silicon Valley. Um, you play Action Jack Barker. Uh, how did that come to be? That was crazy because I was told, like, they are auditioning everybody for this. And we're kind of like in June or July for this part in Silicon Valley. I'd never seen the show. So I watched some on YouTube and I'm going like, oh. This is one of the funniest shows I've ever seen. These characters are off the chart fantastic. This is pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I went in, and I thought I had a really good audition for Accent Jack, uh, probably June at some point in time. And then I didn't hear a word. Nothing. Nothing at all. I'm at a film festival with uh, one of the movies of my storytelling, uh, I believe the primary instinct in hot springs, Arkansas at the documentary film festival. And I get a call from my agent and my manager, which is always big news when they're on a conference call and they go, <laughs> Stephen, uh, where are you? And I go, I'm in hot springs, Arkansas. He says, can you come back to Los Angeles tomorrow? They want to call you back and audition again for Silicon Valley. And I go like, that was months ago. It was October now. I said, I auditioned for that thing in June. I don't even remember what the show was about. I don't remember anything about it. They said, well, come in because they need to start doing this quickly. They need to shoot quickly. They have to decide. So I came in. We, My wife and I, we took a series of flights, if you could imagine, to get from Hot Springs, Arkansas to L.A. I kind of am going over the script. There's no way I'm going to be able to learn it. I, I come in for the audition, and now all the executives, producers are sitting there in this little room over at uh, Sony, MGM, Columbia, whatever you want to call that studio. We're on the second floor, kind of where we're shooting one day at a time now, and the the Goldbergs, kind of the same part of the studio. And uh, Mike Judge is there, and. And he goes like, well, just go over this and just kind of take over the room. Let's see how you take over the room. So you have the casting assistant was a youngish girl operating the camera. All the execs are sitting behind her. And so we start the scene and I come up not on camera at all. And I go, and and I'm, I'm doing lines. I said, you know, Show me how you're doing this. Show me how you're doing this. And let me, you're not doing this right. I want to see this done right. Show me. Shoot, shoot this. Let's just shoot the empty chair. Let me see how you're doing with the empty chair before I sit in the chair. And so she doesn't know what to do. So she starts shooting the empty chair. And I said, I've had it with you people. I've had it. And I start doing the scene and I grab her by the arm and I take her out of the room, down the hallway, down the stairway 
out of the building. And I'm saying, and and the and you could hear the guys laughing upstairs as I'm leaving. You had taken over the room. I took over the room. I came back in there and everybody is laughing. Mike's laughing. He said, well, well let's work through some of the scenes and stay in the, stay in the room. <laughs> so we worked for about an hour. We went through various scenes. I started walking to my car and my phone buzzed and was my manager. You got the part. Don't leave. You start shooting tomorrow. It's hard to not go back to hot springs. Hard not to go <laughs> back to hot springs. So I went over to costuming and we shot four episodes in the next week of just my stuff because they had already finished that. But I loved that show. That show, great cast. And it it was, God, it was, for me, it was like a party every time we shot. It was hilarious all the time. And uh, yeah, what an ensemble cast. Yeah. And also, Mike Judge is awesome. Mike Judge is incredibly awesome. Uh, and he's done it all. I mean, he played rock and roll when he was younger. He worked in silicon, you know, he worked as a programmer or something in computers when he was younger. You know, he's done all these things in his life. Uh, and uh, Thomas Middleditch is probably maybe the funniest person I've ever met in my life. Well, he, uh, he's the talk of the town right now with Middle Ditch and Swars, as yeah. I'm sure you've heard of. The thing is, it's so ironic. You know, T.J. Miller gets, you know, on, on Silicon Valley, gets to be really the outrageous, hilarious person. Ehrlich. Uh, Ehrlich, yeah. And and in between shots, you know, T.J. was really kind of very pleasant, but very serious guy. Thomas, on the other hand, is playing the straight guy, our hero, our leading man. In between shots, he is bringing us to tears, ad-libbing all these different characters with different accents and different things. He's like got to be, yeah, he and Schwartz, you, you know, those guys are hilarious. You know, if you could see them, they're, they're just hilarious. Just unbridled imagination. That's amazing. Um, another show you worked on that I promised two of my friends, Chloe and Claire, that I'd say their names in your presence, um, was Glee. And, um, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of that show. And I was wondering what, what your experience on that was. Well, this, this kind of segues back. So I had broken my neck in Iceland mm. and there wasn't much I could do, but write my stories in the backyard and uh, read, uh, there wasn't a lot I can do. And after three, three and a half months, the doctor said, well, the bones would have knit, you would have been healed. And I get a call from my manager. They want you to go in on this new TV show, Glee. And uh, I go, well, hell, I'm going in. Uh, he said, are you able to do it? I said, I don't care if I'm able to do it or not. I have to audition at some point. Head first. So I read the script Glee and I'm thinking like, this is so life affirming. I, it is funny. It is joyous. I really incredibly dig this show. Uh, I was unable to drive at the time because of my broken neck. 
And then I had another crisis of conscience is that what happens if I go in with my neck brace on? That's kind of a buzzkill for comedy. So I, my wife drives me over in rush hour traffic to go to the audition for Glee. And I make the decision to take my neck brace off and shove it under the couch. Now, there's nobody in the office, which was weird. Casting assistant comes out 15 minutes later, says, Mr. Tobolowsky, we made a terrible mistake. It's the wrong day. You have to come tomorrow. And I stood up and I said, I have just been given a second chance at life. And I explained to him the whole story of my broken neck. I come down and pull the brace out from under the couch. Saying, I tell him about the horse and getting blown off the mountain and the broken neck and the last three months. And I said, I am the luckiest person in the world to be able to come to Glee on the wrong day. This is phenomenal. So I go home that night tossing and turning. What am I going to do? I walk in the next day. Now, there are 100 people, some of them singing, some of them dancing. It's the the chaos you would imagine for an audition for Glee. And they call me in, and they're all the guys, you, you know, all the, the executive producers, you know, Ryan and Dante and Ian, Ian Brennan, all, all the guys who created Glee, they're all sitting there. And I sit down in the actor chair in front of them, and Mike says... So uh, I get the word that you're the luckiest actor in the world to have come to the waiting room on the wrong day. Now, what is the story about this horse in Iceland? So I tell him the story that I told you guys just now about Iceland and the broken neck and the ambulance and all that. And I said, this is what I did yesterday. I came in and I took my neck brace off. And then... I had qualms about that because it's always bad to lie on the first date. Mm. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do today because wearing a neck brace, frankly, guys, would be a bit of a buzz kill for the comedy for you. So this is what I decided I'm going to do. I'm taking my neck brace off now. I'm going to take it off, put it on the chair beside me. We'll do the scenes. It's been a while since I've acted, so I'm probably rusty. If it's too much, I'm going to pick up my neck brace, walk out the door, no harm, no foul. And you'll never see me again. Right. But if I can do it, I am here, and you'll know I can do it, and I didn't lie on the first date. So I did four scenes of Sandy Ryerson for for the guys, and I sang a little song or something from Oliver I don't know, or happy birthday to you, something. I mean, Sandy wasn't really a singing part, but they just didn't, they wanted to use any of that. And I left, and two weeks later, got the part. It was like Forrest Gump running out of his cast. <laughs> the butterfly has left the cocoon. Right, right, right. So that was great. And, and you know, working on Glee was unlike working on any other show and the the show is forever you know it's hard to think of the show without thinking of Corey Mm. and and there was never a spirit on this earth so sweet 
and joyous and wondrous. And unfortunately, you know, my experience with Glee, I had a lot to do with him and it just hurts me so much that, uh, again, drugs got another good one, you know? Uh, so <laughs> this is an awkward transition, but your trivia on IMDb says, and I quote, once held hostage at gunpoint at a supermarket in Snyder Plaza in Dallas. Is this true or is this? Some... No, that's absolutely true. That's one of the oh stories. God. So the Glee story is in uh, Dangerous Animals Club called uh, Dating Tips for Actors, that story. This story is also in Dangerous Animals Club, a story called Light of the First Day. And that is, um, I was in Dallas. My girlfriend wanted chicken and wanted me to get some stuff for for the grocery store. And I walk into the grocery store and there is a new fruit, a new fruit for Texas, mangoes. I, I had never... I knew what mangoes were, but I'd never seen one. I thought, well, she'll be very entertained if if I bring home the chicken and a Swiss colony wine and mangoes. So I'm picking up the mangoes, and I have no idea how to tell if a mango is ripe or not ripe. And I missed the mass exodus that occurred when a crazy guy with a gun came in the store. So I'm there picking mangoes, and then I see this body walk up to me, and he puts his hand on my grocery cart. The nerve. The nerve. I mean, putting your hand on another man's grocery cart is like putting your Unheard hand on of. another man's belt buckle. I mean, you don't do it without invitation. And, <laughs> and he goes like, I see you have mangoes, the most exotic of fruits. Uh, and you're like, what kind of criminal are you? <laughs> and and then I'm thinking like, okay, maybe he's drunk. Maybe I don't, I don't want. So, I, so I'm thinking maybe if I give him two of my mangoes, I'll just move on and shop because Beth wanted the groceries. So I reach down into the cart and that's when I see he's holding a 45 handgun behind his back on his hip. And I come up with the mangoes and he sees my eyes and he knows I know. He pulls the gun out, puts it in my forehead. He has tears streaming down his cheeks now, which is not a good sign. No. And he goes, I don't know why I picked you today. I don't know why. And this is when my acting ability came in. I, I remembered a TV show, Medical Center, starring Chad Everett, and they had a hostage situation on that TV show where they said, you know, you you have to keep the hostage talking mm. to stay alive. Well, I didn't know how to do that, but I knew I could talk. So I started. He wasn't going to kill you mid-sentence well, like the Sopranos. You figure not. So I go like, you know what? You remind me so much of my father. My father, my father... He's he's a doctor. I don't know. You're are you a doctor? I don't think you're probably not. A, my father doesn't love me. He doesn't respect me. He didn't want me to be an actor. And all I want to do is sit at the table with my father and have him say, "Stephen, how are you?" and and be able to talk to him about my life. I mean, I don't know what you're sitting. And I'm talking to him that fast. And while I'm talking to him. I'm looking past him and out the front door of the store, I see FBI guys running their SWAT team with the guns. 
I hear a helicopter coming down like on the roof. I see an ambulance pull into the parking lot of the store. Back doors open up and out comes a gurney and a body bag. They're ready for you. They're ready one way or the other. (laughs) And so I talk to this guy for about 45 minutes until I feel the steam let out. It's really stressful small talk. Very stressful small. And I realize the adrenaline's going. And if I stop talking, I'm in trouble. So I'm saying like, hey, you know, this has been great. What time do you have? What time do you have? And he's got the gun to my forehead. He's looking. He says, oh, it's, I said, oh, well, I got to get home. My girlfriend said, we have to do that. Hey, I don't know. Are you doing anything later tonight? Oh, my God. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been getting a lot out of this, talking about my dad. I hope you didn't mind that, but you just remind me so much of him. But why don't you come on over to the house? You meet my girlfriend. Uh, We can have some chicken and mangoes and a little wine, and we just keep this going. Uh, Do you have a pen on you? And so he's got the gun into my forehead, and he reaches into his pocket and pulls out a pen. I rip off some of the brown paper bag the mangoes are in. And after talking to him for 45 minutes, being absolutely exhausted, I cannot think of a single phony address. So I give him my real address, oh my, my real apartment. There we go. Have, you were out of gas. Out of, we out fuel. of gas. And I hear this voice saying, just push past him. So I push past him. I felt the gun go in the back of my head. And the voice said, don't turn around. Don't turn around. Whatever you do, don't turn around. So I keep walking straight, and there's a at the end of the aisle, there's a Pepsi display. And it's the voice in my head is saying, You get to the Pepsis, you could run. Get to the Pepsis, you're home free. I get to the Pepsis, and I'm getting ready to turn toward the cash registers and run. And I didn't have to run because at that point in time, the SWAT team who covered by the sound of my blather for the last 45 minutes, had come in the back of the store, had come down adjacent aisles of the grocery store, uh, again, covered by my talking nonstop. And as soon as I got to the Pepsis, they jump over the food. And if you go into a grocery store, take a look at how high those shelves are. SWAT team jumped over the food onto my potential dinner guest. And they had this guy hogtied in about eight seconds. And they pulled him, carried him out of the store like a carpet on their shoulders. He's squirming. I'm walking around the empty store and I stop at an empty cash register with all my groceries. And a policeman comes up, pats me on the back and says, hey, buddy, you could just go home. You don't you don't have to pay for the chicken now. It is the only time. Free mango. Free mango. <laughs> the exotic fruit. <laughs> the only time in my life I didn't pay for my groceries. I got home and Beth was waiting for me and she said, Well, where were you? I said, Well, I was just held hostage at gunpoint. And she said, Well, it took a long time. I said, Well, yeah, you know, the hostage situation takes a lot longer than you would think it takes. But yeah, anyway, I'm hungry. Let's eat. Yeah, so that's true. You're like, also, there may be a guest. We'll see. (laughs) Depending on how his legal proceedings play out. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm sure they killed him. That way, that was in Dallas, <laughs> Texas. <I'm> sure. <laughs> Euthanization was easiest. The yeah. the lethal injection was just right there. Well, I I don't even think this is Texas. This was back what I was 25 or something. That they they just would have shot him. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You know, that's Texas. Yeah, it's Texas. <laughs> I don't think we've ever had a hostage situation story on this podcast before, have we, Oh, you're so lucky. You've told two near-death experiences. Do you often uh, come face-to-face with Grim Reaper? Well, I think if you live long enough and you're, you you know, the odds are out there. You know, I had open-heart surgery. You know, I had a triple bypass. I broke my neck. I was held hostage at gunpoint. And then I had to do the live show, you know, with— Jamie Foxx doing the Jefferson's live, you know, that's all near death experiences. Those and, are all equal in magnitude. Yeah. You know, it's, but I think people get in near misses with car accidents or, you know, they get drunk and they fall down the stairs or you, you, there's so many ways, uh, you know, we're, we're very hardy creatures, but we're also very fragile. And, uh, you know, you, you think like, your time is guaranteed you, but it ain't not at all. Um, well, I guess I, I just have one last question, Trent, yes, unless sir. you have something else. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, my family and I, we watch one day at a time. Um, that was a great show or is a great show rather. And I was wondering how that is, how we're working with Rita Moreno is the whole deal. It is heaven on earth. Working on one day at a time is one of the great experiences of my life. From working with Norman Lear to working with dear Pam Fryman as a director several times. Uh, Pam was one of the first directors I worked with in Los Angeles. Uh, One of my idols when I was a teen was Rita Marino. And I get to be her love interest on the show. Uh, And it's a spectacular show. And so this is the drill with One Day at a Time. We were on Netflix for three years. Each year, we doubled our audience. And so I was pretty much certain uh, we were going to get a fourth year. But that is not the Netflix model. You know, they're not there to build shows. They're there to bring in new audiences. It's turnover rate. Turnover rate. Disruption. It was it was very nice time at Netflix, but we were thrilled when Pop TV picked us up. And so we started season four with Pop TV. And then the pandemic came and the entire network went down because no one could shoot shows anymore. We only shot six. So CBS has come to our rescue and October 5th on CBS, they're going to start showing one day at a time. Uh, this fourth season that we shot with Pop TV, two shows a night. So that's uh, every, uh, every, I think that's a Monday night. What, what is October 5th? That, that's a Monday, count. yeah. So two shows at night, I think nine and ten, uh, eight and nine or whatever, depends on your time zone. Be looking one day at a time. These shows are so funny, so delightful. So we're going to be on three weeks on CBS, an hour a night uh, on that on that night, two shows back to back. And if we do well, if we do well for CBS, there is a chance we could be picked up for more shows with CBS or CBS all access. And all I could say is it's one of the great, greatest casts I've ever been with working with Rita Marino is 
the dream of a lifetime. Uh, Justina Machado, you know, she could she could be the captain of my ship any day of the week. D- delightful cast, great directors, wonderful writers. It is one of the few shows that can make you laugh out loud and cry. Uh, I adore it, and I got my fingers crossed for CBS in October. Um, so uh, are you working on anything amidst quarantine or have you been able to or what are your plans moving forward this is we we are going to find out i got cat well i've been doing the goldbergs you know for six years seven years something like that i played the principal on that show uh principal ball they asked me if i would shoot next week so next week we are going to test the covid procedures uh i get my covid test Tuesday morning, then uh, I shoot Wednesday. We have social distancing uh, in the makeup trailer everywhere. We rehearse with masks, shoot without masks. But I was always thinking principal ball scenes are very COVID friendly, if such a thing, such a phrase could be used, because a lot of times the scenes are in a classroom or in my office, and it's usually two people. It's not a big group scene. And sure enough, we're at the beginning now of, I think, season eight of the Goldbergs. And we have a principal ball scene. So I'm very thrilled I'm going to be doing it. It's going to be a ton of fun. And we'll we'll see. I'm nervous. You know, everybody's nervous. But like Ann says, my wife, you got to go out there sometime. So uh, I'll be on the boards again next week. How have you been uh, keeping busy over quarantine? Writing writing podcast and uh, recording them. And it's been, thank God for that, because I've, I've been going nuts anyway. But if I didn't have those shows to write, uh, each one's about an hour long. And, and so we have 16 new podcasts. This season will drop one a week, but it adds up to being like almost two books that you would do with Simon and Schuster, the amount of pages uh, of, of 16 shows. It's a lot of material, but I love this season. So, so that was very involving and it. It made me feel like I wasn't dying, which, which is tough. COVID has made me realize really what social creatures we are. And it's not a matter of introvert and extrovert, but we get so many cues from watching people around us and what we're doing. And when you have no one to watch, you, you begin to kind of self-destruct. You know, your, your brain starts turning into mush. It, you know, we've been, Annie and I, we've been having a lot of trouble remembering things or finishing tasks or it, it, it's, it's been difficult, but uh, hopefully we'll be stronger at the end of it. Yeah, well, that's a great sentiment to end on, I think. Trent? Uh, that's that's all for me. We'd like to thank uh, you again, Stephen Tobolowsky, for coming on our program. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Remember, one day at a time in October, and remember the Tobolowsky Files, September 28th. We dropped the first new show, September 28th. You heard the man. Follow him. Uh, Well, that was a great conversation. I guess we'll bid the audience farewell now. Thank you, sirs. Thank Thank you you so much. 
thank you again to Stephen Tobolowski, our guest for this week. He was wonderful. I would say delightful. Yeah, I'd go as far as to say um, glorious. It was um, life-changing. Um, we would love to speak with you again if you have any gaping holes in your schedule. Parth, tell us, uh, tell the audience what comes next for this little podcast we got here. Well, Trent, we've been a little tardy in our releases, and that uh, that is through our own faults. Um, these episodes are coming out a little late. Uh, I've started school, and so I apologize for the delay, as editing is rather low on my totem pole. Parth, Parth, don't sweat it. Having said that, you can look forward to our discussion um, regarding Memento this upcoming Sunday, and... After that, you're just going to have to wait and see what our next guest is. Surprises. Well, that's all for now. Make good choices. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>